Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm your host, Fabio Molle, and every week I bring you insights from players, coaches, parents, and experts who are ingrained in the world of high-level tennis. This week in episode 210 returns Matt Little to the podcast. Matt is the long-term S&C coach of Andy Murray, and his previous episode, episode 74, if you're wondering, is one of our most downloaded episodes ever. It's great to have Matt back on the show, whose passion for performance is clearly noticeable. Matt was so thorough in sharing his insights, which makes for an extremely interesting episode into the fitness and performance side of tennis. We discussed various topics, including effective fitness for amateur tennis players, the importance for lower ranked players to commit to a fitness block, the latest technology in tennis fitness, why professional tennis players can't wear heart rate monitors, and who owns the data associated with that. We also have a deep look into the planning of Andy Murray's training. The level of detail is insane. And there's a lot for other fitness trainers or people within tennis tennis teams to learn from this. I'd seen Matt over in Dublin a few weeks ago where he was working with a handful of Irish juniors and senior players, ranging from 12 all the way up to 50. He tells me how this process works from day one. And if you're interested in working with one of the world's best performance trainers, I'll share Matt's details at the end. Finally, before we get started, a shout out to our podcast sponsors, ASICS. ASICS, in my opinion, make the world's best tennis shoes. As I've said it here a million times, they recently just won our tennis shoe of the year for the third year running. And whether you need a shoe to cover every inch of the court or spend the full day coaching, they have you covered. My personal favorites are the Solution Speed FF2s. And I can't wait for early 2024 where the Speed FF3 will be available. If you're a coach, I recommend the Resolution 9s. And if you want any more information, drop me a message or head over to asics.com to see their full range. And if you enjoyed this episode, it would be great if you give it a share on your favorite social media platform or anybody you think may find this really interesting, please share it with them. Okay, here's Matt for the second time on the Functional Tennis Podcast. Hi, Matt. Welcome back to the Functional Tennis Podcast. How are you? Thanks, Fabio. Thanks for having me. I am all good, thank you. Yeah, ready to rock and roll. Great. Uh, good. Briefly seeing you a few weeks ago in Dublin. You're over here working with a few of your clients. How many how many days were you over for? Uh, three days, yeah. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, but they were three of the most full-on days I've had in a while. We, uh, we really got into it, which was great, actually. I loved it. I know one of my pals has been, you know, using your services. I wasn't too sure about them, but you, you can work with anybody anywhere around the world, can you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, probably since we last spoke and even during when we last spoke, I kind of has, have developed a bit more an online kind of uh, presence, I suppose, in terms of uh, programming for people. Um, and it's honestly, I've, I've loved every minute of it. It's kind of dragged me far and wide. I've been doing online sessions in America, in Holland, in Scotland, in Ireland working with players of all different ages and abilities. Um, and then obviously when things opened back up again after COVID, I then was able to see a lot of those people in person, but have continued the online stuff. Um, and and so, yeah, it's really afforded me some great opportunities to meet some wonderful characters, some people who love the game, some very good players as well. Um, and so that's an element of my work that I'm really kind of invested in and enjoying a lot, actually. It's kind of cool, like you can, you know, no matter what level you are, I'm guessing, you can, you know, get in contact with you and have Andy Murray's long-term trainer 
as a member of your team, really. Because what well, way? So you how? Let's say I bring you today as like Matt. Want to improve my tennis fitness? Isn't great, but want to get stronger. Yeah. What way do I send you some videos of me playing, or how, how? How does the whole process work, actually? Yeah, I do a bit of an off-court screening on you to see how you move off of the court, and then I do an on-court screening to see how you move on the court. And then try my best to link the two. To so, if there's some imbalances or weaknesses that are showing up off of the court, then we look at how you're playing and moving on the court. Very often, those will will show up in how you're moving and how you're executing your shots as well. And so, we what we do there is we get this really nice link between also the off court training that I would set you and the on court training that I would set you, and how that actually improves your tennis. Because I think all too often we can be doing some exercises and and which, which we're not exactly sure how it links to making me a better tennis player. Uh, and really every exercise I write for anyone, and in truth, anyone who's doing any S&C work for their tennis, there should be really a direct correlation of, well, how is this actually helping me to play tennis better? How is this improving my performance on a tennis court? Um, and, you know, Every SSC coach, I'm sure, can answer those questions. But that's certainly something I really focus on trying to make that come alive for a player is is where the gym program and where the on-court training really links to improvements in tennis. Is that from years of Andy saying to you, why, why am I doing this, Matt? Why, yeah. why, why? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, obviously Emma's comments recently around the questioning of her coaches as well, Emma Raducanu. Um, and I smiled when I saw those comments because I I I kind of felt like well, you know the the best players do ask a lot of questions. Um, you know, when you've been around elite performers long enough, you know that there's no point turning up to them with an idea or something new or something you want them to do without having that backed up by some evidence, without being willing to back up your suggestions with some evidence or some, some common sense reasoning behind that decision. Um, and I think whilst that's challenging, I think that's the, exactly the right challenge that we should all be posed as coaches. And any coach who, who doesn't want that challenge, I think probably the, the highest level of elite tennis nece- isn't necessarily for them. Um, you know, there's a, there's a fine line between, between just arguing about everything and having a genuine kind of in- inquisitiveness as to why you're doing a particular exercise. And um, and yeah, I, I've always found that the best buy-in from players has come from creating that direct link from the exercise to the tennis court. So very often I'll use video evidence for that to say, okay, here's how you were moving or executing that shot before we did this exercise. And hopefully now let's look at that shot and let's let's hope that there's been some benefit or some difference in how you move to, from, or during that shot um, that we can notice. And obviously, we don't just do a couple of exercises and change things straight away. That's not how anything works in reality. But with enough repetition of those exercises, um, I believe we can make changes to how people move and hit the ball and, and play the game. So, yeah, completely agree with you. And so you you give you assess me on court, off the court, you give me some exercise that links everything. Yeah. What sort of work is involved then? Is it is is it a bad question because it's how long's a piece of string? But is it like many sessions a week? Would let's say a junior that works with you, a sixteen-year-old junior, have to do per week? Well, I like most of my players to be doing a couple of sessions a day, actually, 
of, of strength and conditioning stuff, which sounds like a lot. But really, those sessions don't have to be hours and hours of gut-busting work. You know, it, it very often is little activation exercises uh, on the, some of the smaller muscle groups. Perhaps they would do some of that stuff in the morning and maybe some mobility stuff before they go to school or before they go to work. And, and all of that, all of those little sessions, even just on their own, can bank up quite a lot of, of work. You know, you can accumulate a lot of um, a lot of work done and a lot of benefit from just doing that in itself, 30 minutes before school or work. But then after afterwards, and they're at, they're on the court. I like a thirty minutes of their warm up to be really quite good consolidated strength and conditioning work, usually based on their movement and how they're moving immediately prior to the tennis session, or even during the tennis session. If the coach is open to that, they can do some of the movement work, and then the coach feeds the ball specific to that movement. And that's where I find the work really comes alive is when you do some of the exercises, then be fed the exact ball you're working on, video that to see how they execute, discuss it, feedback, and go again, you know, and that's the cycle of work. And then after the tennis session, even if they have a bit of time and any energy left, then head into the gym and do some strength training or some core training or even some endurance training afterwards. So yeah, you know, whilst this is quite a a large volume of work, tennis players are used to a high volume of work. Uh, and I believe that is kind of what it takes really to make some some decent improvements. Uh, and what about for your older OAP players like me? Uh, and many, and many say, who are busy, let's say somebody's busy, they have kids. And I actually like when somebody is 15 minutes late because it gives me an extra 15 minutes warm up. You can do some of the core work, you know, the glute work, the yeah. shoulder work. And, you know, a few times a week, that all, as you said, it all adds up those extra few minutes. But if somebody who's a bit busier, a bit older, who still wants to improve, gets a program on off you, how much, like, let's say, off-court work would they have to do per week? Yeah, I mean, look, I think similar applies no matter what the age and stage, really. Um, like you say, some people's lives are just so busy that that two sessions of S&C a day, even if that's two lots of 30 minutes, might be a bit difficult to squeeze into their schedule. You know, we're all very busy and I completely understand that. It's more the energy, Matt. Sorry, it's more the energy <laughs> level. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's the thing is to kind of take take that perception away that doing S&C work necessarily always has to be flogging yourself on a treadmill or lifting the heaviest weights possible and leaving the gym sore and stiff and tired and exhausted. It isn't necessarily that. Like you say, those activation exercises can take 15 to 30 minutes and don't really leave you particularly tired. It's just the discipline of doing them before you play and allowing for the time before or after that you play or having it as a little breakfast or morning routine. Um, You know, I I just think that the amount that you put in, as in anything in life, the amount that you put in is very often the amount that you get back out. Um, But actually, most players, even the the kind of, you know, your your 45-plus-year-old players, can notice quite a few fairly significant benefits from doing consistently over a period of weeks, lots of small hits of sessions like that. They can notice some benefits, um, particularly when it comes to things like mobility, because very often we stiffen up the older we get. And actually, if we do so with some regular mobility, um, I quite like yoga exercises or Pilates exercises, but even just some static stretching late in the evening when you're watching TV. All of those little things can add up. So like anything, as much as you commit to it is as much benefit as you'll get out of it. 
Um, but but it doesn't have to be okay. I need to set aside three hours to do my gym stuff, or even an hour to do my gym stuff. Actually, a little thirty minute session regularly done um, will give you benefits in that area, whatever that area may be: flexibility, stability, strength, whatever it may be. Yeah, no, I I agree. The more of them you can do, and f- for me, I'm going to talk about for me now personally. Convenience is a big part of this as well. Having your gym, let's say some of the, you can't do some of the exercises at home, you can do some, but having like even your course or your gym close to you actually makes a massive difference. You're not stuck in traffic. Oh. You're getting stiffer stuck in traffic, and uh, so all those little things. So that's really interesting. So. Uh, you're basically saying there's still hope for me, which is great. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, look, if you also have a tennis coach who's open to it, if you can ask for the first 10 minutes of your tennis session or 15 minutes of your tennis session can be on some movement specific stuff, doing a couple of movement exercises, like I say, and incorporating that into the tennis session, I really feel there's a great deal of benefit that can be that can be gleaned from doing that kind of work both for the tennis coach themselves as well, to just really drill down into some specific movements that you're working on. And the other thing that I quite like to incorporate in the on-court sessions is cardio work as well. Um, So if people want to get fitter, um, you know, to actually do some drilling or some basket feeding with the tennis coach with a stopwatch, you know, of 30 seconds work and a minute break or whatever it may be with a heart rate monitor on, then you're actually ticking your fitness box properly on the court in a structured kind of way so that, again, you're you're kind of assigning a, per, a part of your tennis session to working on that fitness quality. You then don't need to finish the tennis session and go on to the treadmill or the bike because you've already ticked that box in your tennis session. And, of course, in those kind of drills, I don't know whether it's two cross, one line, whatever you're doing, you're also hitting a high volume of balls as well. So you can work on your timing um, and, and your execution whilst, whilst doing that cardio work. So... I think there's plenty of ways we can be creative and kill two birds with one stone when we're when we're out there. Yeah, there's something simple. This may sound stupid, but having even an extra tennis ball or two makes a big difference. You can keep more balls and play over a session, stuff like that. But uh, the heart rate stuff quickly. If let's say I'm with a coach, coach feeding the ball, doing two line one cross, or he's really evil and doing changing every shot what way does the heart rate stuff like are you looking to reach a certain heart rate and then rest until it hits a certain like what what sort of heart rate should it reach when you stop yeah i mean obviously it's different for different ages and fitness levels but most heart rate monitors these days will give you the zones your training zones okay Uh, and something i do with some of my my kind of club level players is ask them to wear the heart rate monitor in matches to see how many minutes in each zone they get when they're playing a match against the toughest opponent. Because typically in one set, you may get 15 minutes in like an amber zone, which which would be kind of 60 to 80% of your maximum heart rate. You might get 15 minutes in that amber zone. And then you might also get three to six minutes or even more, depending on the opponent, um, in the red zone, which is kind of 80% plus. And then you can kind of replicate that or program for that in your cardio training. So you say, okay, I know that per set I get about 15 minutes worth of amber work and six minutes of red work. I'm going to try and replicate that on the treadmill or in my drilling session with the coach, you know, and wear your heart rate monitor in your drilling session, even with a hitting partner. Okay, I've only hit. 10 minutes of amber heart rate. Let's do a little two cross one line for five minutes and see if I can get that at that time in the yeah. amber zone up. 
you know, and so you can kind of program yourself a little bit based on some of your matches and the demands of your matches to, um, to, to, to do your fitness work and your cardio work around that. But generally speaking, like time in the red zone is quite a nice little marker because that's when you're really kind of nailing tough cardio work. Um, and again, depending on your age and stage and populations, you've got to be a bit careful how much red zone work you do if you're a bit older, but, um, but still, you know, some tolerable levels or a couple of minutes in the red zone and, and improving your ability to play tennis at those levels of heart rates and the amber zone particularly as well. Um, I think that can have a real benefit for for amateur players too, because very often when they start to get to higher heart rates, their technique breaks down, their movement breaks down. So doing some training that's that's helping you tolerate that level of heart rate and still executing the skill well, I think could be p- pretty beneficial for for club players and, dare I say it, for pro players too. Yeah, no, true. And also the mental aspect, because when the legs are tired, the mind's tired and you start making those lazy decisions and you're slapping the ball, trying to get out of trouble. So your whole game just falls apart. Does Andy still do the 400s? When's the last time he did a 400? I remember, remember no. years ago, it must be 20 years ago at this stage, he was doing his 10 sets of 400 and crazy stuff. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah, we haven't done that for a long time. Um, you know, we've our, our we've gone through different phases in his career of of which of which kind of exercises we've selected to do the cardio work. And actually, we do do a lot of the cardio work on the court these days. Again, trying to limit the amount of time that he spends off the court as well as on it. And so we try and tick several boxes at once. Um, so we do we definitely don't hit the track anymore. Uh, the Versa climb is still in play, uh, and the Watt bike still in play. Um, so trying to take that impact out of his joints, particularly, you know, given his, 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 uh, his well-reported struggles with the hips and things. So we've tried to remove a bit of the impact from his cardio training, um, where, where we can, but then if he is going to be on the court chasing balls around, well, okay, let's do it in a structured way to get some, get some cardio gains as well. Nice. And just, I'm going to just cut back. I jump forward there. Anybody I spoke to who saw you in Dublin? said the one thing to remember is get low get low you were big on getting low so obviously for obvious reasons for using your legs but you must see a lot of players that just don't use their legs enough i i see it at every level i literally every level and it's probably becoming something that i'm gonna have to tattoo on my forehead really uh and maybe i don't know maybe i'm the stuck record but every player that i work with uh, Louis Kai would classify it as your athletic height is being low enough. Now, what that means to a tennis coach is obviously, yeah, being balanced um, uh, and being in the correct position. But for an S&C coach, to me, it means that you're engaging the big muscles of the body. You're engaging the glutes, the hamstrings, the quads um, to, to really bend and prepare for the shot. What you then do is you uncoil and and you know create vertical force as well as other planes of movement but vertical force particularly and you impart that vertical force on the ball which to me also creates the shape on the shot and i know obviously with the wrist and the hand you also create shape on the shot and spin but from a physical perspective and this is where it's quite interesting i did some coach education just this week many tennis coaches look at players from the waist up snc coaches look at players from the waist down 
Uh, and, and I see that when players are creating shape on the ball, it is when they are engaging their lower bodies at their most and they are getting their legs low and beneath the height of the ball so that they can, they can then kind of get this low, high, low kind of posture uh, and body position as they prepare for the shot, as they execute the shot, and as they recover from the shot, I want them low before the shot. I want them low after the shot. Okay. And I kind of want them not coming high. High is the wrong word because that would, would suggest you're popping up through the shot, but but driving up in a diagonal fashion through the shot in order to create that shape and spin and impact on the ball. And so I, I know I'm sort of I'm sailing dangerously into the technical technical part of yeah. of tennis coaching, and so I know I, I choose my words carefully, and I always ask more questions than make statements in these times when I work with players and coaches on this stuff. But every player that I work with, who we engage in this discussion with, and again video them and show them their athletic height is too tall, they're not bending their legs, they're not they're not kind of getting this low high low through the uh, through the shot. When they start to do that, all of them hit a better ball. All of them are on, are more on balance. They very often can shank the ball in the first few minutes of doing that because they've kind of disrupted their rhythm in a little yeah. way in their, in overemphasizing that knee bend a little bit. But in truth, once they get the feeling and the rhythm of it, the, the sound on the ball, the impact on the ball is completely different. The shape on the ball, the reliability and repeatability of the shot is completely different. The only problem is that their their quads and their glutes gas pretty quickly within a okay. few minutes of really doing that kind of work. And that's when I've got them hooked into the gym program because I'm like, look, you need to be strong enough to be able to do this for hours in truth. Um, you know, to be engaging your lower body and getting low and getting your hips beneath the height yeah. of the ball for hours, um, and that's where that's where the physical benefits are. If you if you're playing on your own terms, if you are dictating and trying to counter punch or whatever it is you may be, engaging your lower body in that battle as much as possible is definitely, in my view, and I would say this because I'm the SSC coach, yeah, is definitely the way to. To, to hit the ball on your own terms more and to create damage more by engaging your legs. Yeah, no, I, that all makes sense to me and it's all positive. And I love when you when I do go to a tournament with a lot of top players and you just see them, like they have that lower stance, like they're like so low. And you're like, and that's just who they are. That's like, that's years of program and repetition and they just have it and you're trying to replicate it. And, you know, it, you just, it's, I said, the legs aren't strong enough, but you just see the top players do have that position naturally from years of, I'm sure doing, doing the right things. I've been told working with good trainers and whatnot, but you probably need that to be at the top of the game as well. I, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I also I also think that there are a lot of top players, dare I say, it, that could even do a better job with this. And so I do have this conversation at all levels of the players that, that I work with, truly, because even those that are getting low could get lower and could engage their legs even more. Can you name one? <laughs> no. No, no but I think, again, I would throw the challenge out there yeah. to people listening to this to watch some players uh, and to see which players exhibit this 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 low wide athletic base in their shots, look at the better ones and see if there are some examples of players that perhaps could be better in that. Um, 
and look, everyone has their own style and their own way of hitting the ball. Um, and clearly, if they've made it to the top of the game, they are effective in what they're doing. Um, but, uh, but I just find it interesting watching players um, that, 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 that have big games, you know, that hit the ball incredibly well, that, ca- that could probably on certain occasions and in specific situations engage their legs more on the shot. It's not necessarily ubiquitous across their entire game that every ball they hit, they're just using their arm. That's not the case at all. But um, but there will be some specific situations where they can engage their lower body more, get more vertical force and more force production imparted onto the into the tennis shot. Um, and like I said, I talk about vertical force a lot because that's what we work on in the gym very often is force going upwards from the ground, producing ground reaction force. Um, that's that's very much the you know the currency in which I trade. Um, but of course, there's rotational force, there's lateral forces. Um, which which are also at play. So I, you know, I wouldn't want anyone listening to this thinking, "Well, does he not think that people rotate or yeah. people move from side to side?" It's not just up and down, but that's really the um, the primary purpose of a of a strength and power program is force production. Is how much force you can produce, how quickly you can produce it, as well as how much force you can absorb and, and how well and quickly you can absorb, i.e. decelerate that force as well. Which is important. Quick interruption to say if you're enjoying Matt's knowledge and you want to learn more about how he started in the area, his earlier days with Andy Murray and more, check out episode 74 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'll also include a link to it in our show notes. And do you measure all these with Andy? Like, do you have, I'm not sure what the plates are called. Do you check his force and making sure he's going in the right direction? Yeah, I think, it, I mean, all of those things, testing modalities, whether that's using force plates, speed timing gates, they're all useful at certain times when you're asking a specific question. Um, and that's where sports science is, is great that, that, you know, you can take your pick these days from various objective measures and draw from those. And force plates is definitely one of them. We have used them with Andy. We don't use them every week by any stretch. But if we're trying to answer a specific question, whether that's force production, whether that's um, speed and power, um, whatever that may be, the the tricky thing when we talk about athletic height and getting low is that that's fairly subjective outside of perhaps video evidence of looking at how they're hitting the ball and showing them videos before and after, mm. then that that can be objective. But it's also very difficult to say, oh, well, you were bending your knee to this degree you yeah. know, in this shot because every ball is different. It's related to the stimulus of the ball. So it's quite a subjective measure. Um, but with things like change of direction, you know, we've used some video evidence to say, look, this is the angle of your your shin and this is, this is how low you're getting to the ground. There, there are some ways in which we can draw some conclusions objectively from that. Nice. And you, you're at obviously the cutting edge of tennis here and I know your interest in technology. Andy's been using GPS Munder for years now. Has anything changed recently? Any new tech out there? Um, you, um, I know the top guys be you guys as well, probably top of the game. Can't say exactly what you're using, but is there anything that uh, that's changed in the past few years? Yeah, I mean, I've... I suppose I've reputedly used the uh, the catapult technology quite a lot, which is the the little unit that fits into the vest that you'll see a lot of the footballers and rugby players wearing. I'm just jumping in here, Matt. Does that work for tennis players? Because I thought catapult said it's 
it doesn't work. Maybe it's an indoor issue rather than outdoors. But I, I was always they don't really advertise it for tennis players. No, and look, they they have an intention to, and they have been. You know, we've been using it with Andy for for quite a long time. I'll say that. Look, there are certain things about uh, GPS movements, as in connect, co- you know, communicating with a satellite that's you know that's in space around the finite small movements on a tennis court. There is error within that because in a football match you're more likely to be sprinting, or a rugby match you're likely to be moving for 10 or 20 yards potentially in a, you know, and, and the GPS can pick you up yeah. very accurately when you're moving at, you know, three metres in one direction very quickly and then three metres back. It's a, it, that does create some noise and some, some inaccuracy. But to me, that's not a reason to, to discard this technology at all. There is so much good information that can be derived from the accelerometer that is within that unit as well, as well as the GPS. And because in tennis we're usually dealing with an N of one, you're basically comparing Andy on Monday to Andy on Friday, that you can accept that there is the same amount of error on Monday as there is on oh, Friday, yeah. and that point. is comparable to Andy and is relevant to Andy. So I do feel like the feedback, if you are just comparing yourself with yourself with the same unit and measuring the same thing, that there is some compa- comparability even if there is error within that, that that it is relevant and it is um is valid. So so to, to talk about something that we've been doing um we're not doing great well we've been doing probably the last year or so is trying to answer the question how how relevant are certain practice drills to match conditions? And it's something that obviously I don't know whether I spoke to you about it a lot, but it's something I've beaten the drum for for quite a long time. Is is the the construction of a tennis session? What makes a tennis session? And what drills are relevant to put into a tennis session? For what purpose is that drill serving from a physical standpoint? You know, uh, and so obviously hitting balls cross courts. You know, from a tennis perspective you're working on rhythm timing hitting balls at different heights dealing with different spins receiving skills sending skills etc but from a physical perspective you're really not ticking many boxes at all when you're just standing there hitting hitting balls cross court it's not to say you should never hit balls cross court i'm just talking about answering the question how relevant is that drill to match play and therefore how much time in the week do we spend doing drills that are relevant to match play versus how much time in the week we spend doing drills that aren't relevant to match play? That makes sense. Yeah. And so again, looking at the the the, the GPS data and the accelerometry data, we started to work with a company called Breakaway, which is an app that produces lots of different metrics for players. And I won't I won't be able to explain all of the different things that the Breakaway app could do. But one of the things Breakaway did for us is that they could help us present the catapult data in a meaningful way so that we could try and answer that question, ultimately. How relevant are the drills that we are doing to match play? And so what the the, the computer scientists were able to do was take the, da- the data from the accelerometer in the, in the catapult unit and show us the intensity of the movements uh, that Andy was making in practice. 
if the movement was relevant to match play movement, because obviously we did this for a match, we got into wear it for an exhibition match. We got the data from that exhibition match. If the movement spike was red or amber, a bit like the heart rate that I yeah. just talked about, if the movement spike from this particular drill was red or, or amber, we would say that that was pretty close or, or at match level intensity movement. If the movement spike was more green or blue, we would say that that does not match match intensity movements. So what we could then do was classify drills into four categories, okay? So the four categories were this. Low intensity movement at low heart rate. That's category one. Then you have low intensity movement at high heart rate, category two. Category three, high intensity movement at low heart rate. Okay. And then high intensity movement at high heart rate. So you then have four categories of drills that, that are clear on the demands on the body from a physical standpoint what you're actually picking in a session to work on. Oh, interesting. So that you can construct your training week to say, well, how much time are we spending in low heart rate zones with low intensity movement? How much of the week are we spending in high heart rate zones, but with low intensity movement? And you know the drills. Yeah. And what drills do we think tick that box ultimately? So an example of a low heart rate drill with low intensity movement would be uh, working on technique. So single ball feed, slicing cross court. Your heart rate's not getting very high and the intensity of the movement isn't high. Clearly, there is a place for that in the training week. So, of course, there is a place for all of this in a training week. An example of a low intensity movement with high heart rate is your two cross one lines three cross, one line, whatever it may be, your pattern drills. So Andy did a really intensive hitting session with a college uh, with, with a college player. Really good session. And we came off that the session going, wow, that was great. I mean, the, the standard hitting was awesome. You know, the guys were sweating buckets. And when we analyzed the session, it was all blue movement. Okay. There was zero... And I mean zero match intensity movement wow. in that session. Wasn't to say it wasn't a beneficial session. Okay, okay. It was a beneficial session, great session, but it wasn't it did not train match intensity movements. And it's important to make that distinction. And this is exactly why we wanted to make that distinction. Then you've got examples of high intensity movements at low heart rates. Mm. That would be more of a speed type drill. Single ball feed from one corner to the other, here, flat out running forehand on the run and recover, and then walk back to the start. Okay. Take 30 seconds rest, go again. So that's high intensity movement, low heart rate. And then finally, your high intensity, high heart rate would be drilling that usually has some kind of an open theme to it. So rally cross, uh, on the third ball, one of you goes line, or 
as soon as possible, someone hits a drop shot when you're rallying cross or feeding a short ball, an attack, whatever it may be, but doing that for long enough so the heart rate gets high, but there's this open element to the drill where you have to react and sprint somewhere along the line. And the people listening can be creative as they as creative as they want in 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 these categories, uh, and you don't necessarily need a a catapult to be able to do that. We just obviously wanted to do that to to create the evidence and the real proof of what we were doing. Um, but but you know we've done that kind of heavy lifting of of saying right well what's the purpose of this drill you know back to the player asking the question you know why am I doing two cross one lines what's the purpose of this okay well actually I can tell you from a physical standpoint that you're going to get zero match match intensity movement doing this drill but you are going to get high heart rates so is that useful for for what we want to do today yeah okay let's let's go for it you know. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny the whole high heart rate thing. Let's say you're going cross. If I go cross, I like to put down a cone. Just adds a bit more. You're adding a bit more. There's a reason why you're doing it. You're working a bit on precision as well. But so your heart rate's going up. You're doing it for a long time. Are you getting fit? You, but you're not moving your feet that much because you're in the corner. So are you getting fitter or not, Matt? What improvements are coming there? It depends because certain players, even in one corner produce a lot of force from the ground. Okay. And that has a physical cost to doing that. Their heart rates will get higher as a result of doing that. Some players are a lot smoother, and it's not to say that the people who use the ground aren't smooth. Yeah. <laughs> um, but some players, you know, like your one-handed, backhand players, uh, the str- guys who might stroke the ball, let's say, more than other guys who, let's say, might rip the ball more, their heart rates would be relatively low when they're standing in one quarter. Therefore, you'd have to get them on the move more okay, in order to create a high heart rate situation for them. The guys and girls who use the ground more probably don't have to move as much to get their heart rates higher. Um, and again, it's very simple to stick a heart rate monitor on people, set the drill up for a specific amount of time and see what happens. Mm. Learn about how your body and how you as an individual respond to different stimulus on the court. Which drills get me there? Which drills don't get me there? And I think that's really the ultimate purpose of what we're trying to boil that down to. Because from an elite perspective, what I can then do is understand what's happened on the court from a physical perspective and program around that accordingly from a strength and conditioning perspective. So if someone's had an absolute lung-busting, gut-buster of a tennis session where they've had, I don't know, 20 minutes in the red zone in that session, for me to then walk them straight into the gym and give them a couple of hundred kilos to lift um, in a deadlift is a pretty unfair thing for me to do. And to expect them to execute that well is pretty counterproductive when we're looking at a training week of anyone, elite or otherwise, frankly. Yeah. So actually, the, you then say, well, what drills fit best with a cardio day versus what drills fit best with a strength and power day or a speed day? What s drills fit best 
when we're working on technique and speed on the court versus what S&C drills fit best when the emphasis of the tennis session is more cardio driven. Then you've got proper programming that's dovetailing for that player. And, and I would argue that anything that isn't necessarily addressing those questions can at times be counterproductive for the player. Okay. Yes, that makes 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 sense. So it sounds like you, your sessions, Andy Murray, everything's programmed. You know, you know what's happening. Let's say next week or two weeks or three weeks, whatever terms are coming up, and there's a reason why we're doing this today. And it's obviously all to peak on that day, but everything's programmed, and there's sort of a chain reaction of events going on. Is, is that the right word? Where you're yeah. doing this on court, so we're going to be doing that. You you reached so many red zones today. That's today's. Then we're going to be doing the gym and recovery, and we haven't even talked about the recovery bits. Uh, but is so is Andy now with all of this programming? Obviously, if you know somebody's in the red zone, the sessions are harder. You probably spend less time on court, are you? Not necessarily, because no. you can flip between those drills at any one time. So you might couple up some light technical, knowing it's going to be a high cardio day. You might start with light technical work to not tire them out before they then go into a heavy cardio element to then revert back to some lighter technical work, serving, returning yeah. is low heart rate and relatively low movement intensity if you're not moving after the shot. So you can pair things depending on the goals for your session. So you could still do a three-hour session, which has 20 minutes of red zone in it, but the rest of the session is deliberately... And a lot of coaches will be doing this intuitively anyway, yeah. which is deliberately light. You know, um, if it, you know, coaches will have good feel around that anyway. A lot of them will go, well, yeah, I do that anyway. But actually, I think it's better to objectively try and measure these things so you know how much red zone you're putting in. Yeah. And what I also think it's important to say here is what I'm presenting is, is ideal world scenario. You know, it's it's utopia in a way yeah. that this is the ideal world. We all know that in any given training week with anybody, whether you're an amateur club player or whether you're a pro player, life is much messier than this. Things come up. Players want to work on different things when you've planned to work on something else. Plans change all the time. You're pivoting all the time. So I, I don't want to paint this amazing picture that life is life with Andy Murray or any other pro player is this beautifully planned out laminated sheet of paper, yeah. which weeks in advance we've agreed, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> it's not. There's niggles and... Yeah. There's things come up every day which impact that plan. But if, you've me if you're measuring things and you're making evidence-based decisions, or not even evidence-based decisions, but logic-based decisions on a plan in advance, that allows you to pivot. It allows you to know, do you know what? He wanted to work more on his, I don't know, his volleys today, and we had planned the cardio element today, but actually we ended up skipping that because we really just got onto a subject that we wanted to drill into, so we missed the cardio. You at least know you have missed the cardio, and let's try and stick that in tomorrow, and therefore if we're going to do it tomorrow, I need to adapt the s drills and you kind of then muddle through the week, but you do it in a way which is more structured 
and more objectively thought out than just what are we doing today? Figure it out yeah. as, they're, as they're hitting balls in the warm up. Uh, yeah, I think you know the return <laughs> was a bit off yesterday, so we're going to focus on return a bit more. The last match didn't didn't hit the forehand particularly well, so we're probably going to do a bit more on the forehand today. You know, that's that kind of reactive level of tennis coaching, which I believe, you know, I think you can, we can be better than that. We can structure a training week and therefore a training camp and an annual plan. We can try and structure it better than that by having some very simple conversations. This doesn't, I know I've presented some of these elements in a fairly complicated way, talking about GPS trackers and all of those kinds of things, but truly most of the conversations we have around those things are very, very straightforward layman's term conversations around is today a cardio day or is it a speed and power or is it light and technical versus lung busting, you know? How much breakfast should I have today, Matt? Those sort of questions. <laughs> exactly. Well, actually, you come to mention it, the nutrition around those different days then can be adjusted also. I reckon I say if there's any of the chancer trainers listen to this now, which there are, I'm going to be, I know there are, uh, they're in trouble now. They're going to be, you know, they're like, <laughs> life's not like just about making decisions this morning, what we're going to do today, player. Um, if you want to be at the best of your game, be it the best trainers out there, you have to have long-term thinking, planning involved. And uh, as you say now, numbers are a big part of this and uh, re as you say research back decisions yeah and look i've never had never once had a, a long-term medium-term or short-term plan even for the day never mind the week which hasn't changed never once so once again i i'm really not trying to present this utopia that everything's planned out to the minute and you know 68% intensity, 7% volume, whatever it is, you know, it's now, I'm really not trying to overcomplicate things here. Yeah. But what I am saying is that the best, I believe the best teams, certainly the ones that I've operated within, plan to a good level, plan to this degree. And even if it isn't perfect, they are working on perfecting their planning ability to structure training in the right way and to have the off-court and the on-court training try and meet somewhere in the middle where you can actually improve performance without one side negatively impacting the other side, which invariably there's going to be. If yeah. I get a player to lift in the gym, there will be some stiffness and soreness the next 48 hours. That will impact the tennis session. Yeah. If the tennis coach decides to do, you know, a lot of high volume hitting that is going to have an energy cost to my gym session. It's inevitable. But the more we talk about it and understand the demands of each of those sessions and plan for that, the less we're going to crash into each other and the more we're going to have a relatively smooth sailing kind of plan. Yeah. And I, I'm sure like the more consistent an athlete is with you know, like a lot of ball work, a lot of gym work, heavy gym work, the body gets accustomed to it. So the recovery, you know, you, 
tennis players aren't, they don't, their strength levels, they don't keep going and going and going, do crazy weights or, you know, you reach a certain point where you're sort of, I'm sure you're happy and you tip along. So you shouldn't be as sore the more you do this. Is, am I correct there? Or, yeah, absolutely. Or, or just don't work hard enough. No, no. I mean, no, no. There's definitely a, an adaptation period where the more often you do sessions of a particular nature, the less and less you will be sore because your body is adapting to that. But therefore also then after a while, you do need to then change that change. session, whether it's the difficulty or the nature of that session in order to create a new adaptation. But this is where, and I, I, I again, I talk about this a lot, and a lot of this has come from my work with Jez Green, uh, you know, in the in the first few years without working with Andy, that having this annual plan of picking out periods of time where you are allowed to get that work done in a more consolidated nature, where the tennis aspect and certainly the competitive element of tennis is less present and less important, and you ring fence time to say this month or even this six weeks, dare I say it is where we're going to really hone in and focus on the physical development aspect of my game. So it doesn't matter if I walk on court really a bit sore from some weight training or really mm. a bit tired from some running or some cycling that I've been doing. It doesn't matter because I don't have a tournament for yeah. a month anyway. Versus trying to do that when you are in the middle of a competition block. Um, and of course you need to do an element of that whilst you're in a competition block as well, so that you don't regress because all training is reversible. So you do need to stimulate the body throughout the competitive season as well by maintaining certain elements, but it's very difficult to improve physical qualities when you're in the middle of a competition block, because to improve a physical quality takes a great deal of work. And that work comes at a cost in terms of energy levels, in terms of sometimes stiffness and soreness. And so if you don't, if you can't do that in a competition block, you need to find another time to be able to do that. Um, and that's where I believe um, it's a bit simpler for players at the highest level of the game because there are some natural breaks in the off season, you know, end of November, December. For some players, often players will some players will choose to play exhibitions through that period. But but for the players that are more kind of challenger and definitely the players that are more futures level players and below, including amateurs, they can compete every week of the year. And when they're not competing, that comes at a financial cost to them. So I understand that that ring fencing a month or even six weeks without competing is that without earning as well. And therefore, that's a real commitment from them to make that decision. Uh, and it's a brave decision. But in my opinion, over the course of years, make it being brave and sticking to those decisions is going to get you or is going to give you the best chance of getting to a place where you are able to perform at higher levels because you have a greater phys physical capacity to produce force, to last long matches. It's interesting because very often um, I will hear the term, I believe that player has run out of steam in the third set. They ran out of gas. They got gassed in the mm. third set. 
Uh, and I've always found that quite interesting because I've always kind of thought, well, actually, this player trains for two or three or four hours sometimes a day on court. They're hitting for that many hours a day. How on earth can they get gassed in a, you know, in a in a three set match? They've been playing three sets since they were probably twelve. These players, you know, so so where, where's the the disjoint there? And of course, that that can be linked to cardiovascular training in terms of it not being intense enough, yeah, and not executed at intense enough movements like we've just talked about. But in my opinion. And it is only my opinion. The vast majority of those players lose the ability to produce force effectively in those third sets. To me, it's not a cardiovascular issue, or rarely is it a cardiovascular issue. To me, it is an ability to produce force. And that is a strength issue, ultimately. That is a, a strength slash strength power issue. Their ability, their, their reserves of strength in terms of the endurance elements of that strength, but also with, in, with, with, with reference to the power-producing elements of that strength, I believe that is what decreases and declines through the course of a three-set match, not necessarily the ability to have the lungs to keep going. Because as we know, and I'm sure these statistics vary, but, you know, let's say 80% of points. It could be less for others. It could be 60 or 70% of mm. points last less than four shots. That, you wouldn't be far off there. You're right. So, so in terms of the internal demands, and I'm talking about heart rate, cardiovascular demands of being able to last for less than four shots for 80% of the time, that isn't necessarily a particularly demanding scenario from a cardiovascular perspective. Now, of course, again, we've all seen matches. It's into its third hour. It's heat. You know, you're playing against a very tough opponent. It's very intense movements. Yes, that does, of course, go into the cardiovascular element. You will have higher heart rates with adrenaline in those situations. But in a lot of situations where players gas in the third set, I often believe it is because they can't produce the force rather than, and the, and the two are linked, of course. If you're gassed from a cardio perspective, you won't be able to produce the force. Yeah, definitely. But their strength reserves, their base of strength, in my opinion, isn't big enough. It isn't broad enough, that base of strength, to also give them that ability to produce force in the third set. Yeah, no, I think... That makes a lot of sense again. And what you say about players having the courage to, you know, the lower ranked players say, I'm taking a month off here, not competing. We're going to work on the strength here or force or whatever. I think it's a hard decision for them because as you said, oh, I could be earning this week, but ultimately they probably end up not earning anyway. It costs them more money. So at least you're at home, you have a base or wherever you're training, you can spend four weeks trying to improve or whatever a couple of them a year or more, I'm not sure, but I can I can see the value in that. But you mentioned like players gassing, but what about cramping, Matt? Is how come you see a lot of these junior stars come up and they struggled with cramp? I noticed Alcaraz was, he looks like stress related at Wimbledon. Uh, but we've, we've other, there's been other players similar to him who've, Andy back in the day, Djokovic back in the day, they all had sort of cramping issues at that young age. Is it because they're just not strong enough? Is that a strength issue? 
Look, I, I think again the cramp the cramp issue is very multifactorial, and the okay. the scientific world still doesn't have a definitive answer on muscle cramps. There's lots of theories and philosophies, um, lots of companies involved in trying to solve this. And and I believe that there are also different kinds of cramp. There are, as you say, stress-related cramps, potentially dehydrated cramps. You know, but those of us who've ever had a foot cramp in the middle of the night, that's not necessary. We don't, that's not necessarily due to sweat loss potentially. So that could be a tension in the muscle-related cramp. I, I don't know and don't profess to know hmm. the exact science behind all of those elements. I did see a study recently that looked at cramping in marathon runners. And marathon runner, again, I know I sound like I'm banging the strength drum here continually because I'm a strength and conditioning coach. It's a bit like yeah. the ice cream seller flogging ice cream. But I did see a study in marathon runners who are different to tennis players, but marathon runners that had done strength training suffered from less breakdown of the muscle and therefore cramped less in in the latter stages of marathon running versus those who hadn't done strength training so their muscles their, the proteins their muscles were breaking down and they they cramped more often than those who had done strength training and okay. i did think I, I could probably go back you probably go through my twitter feed i did retweet it i believe um uh so so again i i won't kind of um do this study discredit by speaking very technically about that study because i i don't have the same level of insight as the scientists who did that study but the principle to me was that the marathon runners who had strength trained cramped less because their muscles were more able to cope with the force demands of marathon running than those who didn't do as much strength training or any strength training and so okay. I do believe, again, there is a strength capacity element sometimes to cramping. When it comes to your question around the juniors that transition to seniors, I think this is quite an important one because I think it's very unfair to level accusations at elite-level junior players that they aren't fit enough when it comes to senior tennis. Because again, I, um, I, I'm, I'm certain that all of those junior players or the vast majority of them will have been training very hard yeah. and will have been very professional in order to get themselves to a level which gets them competing with, with fully grown adults you know, at a younger age. I believe there is an element of a rite of passage in a way that that jump up in intensity of every single ball coming back at them faster, sooner, more accurately, over and over and over again, over time, is what causes them to be, yes, more metabolically stressed for sure. So there is a fitness yeah. element to it, but it isn't because they're not fit enough. You know, it's not because, oh, well, this player, they're not fit enough to compete on the tour. It is just, a, a to me, there's no amount of fitness training that could that could prepare them for that scenario, it yeah. for me is situation specific physicality that you can't get until you're in that situation. You know, yeah. Alcaraz, and I don't, I don't profess to know anything about his physical preparation with regards to that French Open final. 
but it would it, logic would suggest that it is just simply a situation specific that he's never been exposed to or rarely been exposed to on that surface in those conditions against that opponent that forced that level of physical breakdown. And that it's n- it's not something where you could say, well, Alcaraz just wasn't fit enough for that final. That's not oh, yeah. fair to him to make that accusation. You know, and I've seen so many players cramp. I'm pretty sure Felix Auger Aliassime cramped against Shapovalov at the US Open um, a few years ago. And I was like, you can't tell me that he's not fit enough. You can't, I'm sorry, that's not fair. You can't tell me Alcaraz isn't. Um, you know, and so. I think coaches should be, you know, just more selective in the language that that they use. That yes, it could be a, a fitness issue, but it's it's specific to that scenario. I can bet my bottom dollar those players are fit, but they just aren't. They haven't been prepared for that specific situation. Matt, I've about fifty more questions here, but we don't have time for them. I understand, <laughs> but maybe. We're going to get one in now quickly. Uh, you should answer quickly. And then another one, I'm going to do something different. I don't normally do show you a video. But uh, heart rate monitors in live tennis matches. You said Andy has to had to put on the GPS unit in an exhibition match. Do you not think players should be able to wear these monitors in live matches? Rugby players do it. Soccer players do it. They all do it as far as I know. But why aren't tennis players allowed to wear this informa- these devices? Yeah, I mean, I've had lots of conversations, particularly with the ATP, about this scenario, and it's coming. I think the the ability to use wearables in match is coming, actually, probably sooner than we realise. Uh, all of those conversations are in the pipeline. Uh, ultimately, it's about data. Who owns the data? Whose data is okay. it? What can that data be used for? Um, because you know, ultimately, in the past, it's certainly been the scenario where the tournament owns the data. Whereas the the player is wearing the device, it's actually their data that's being produced. But in terms of, I, I believe, and I might be getting myself in hot water here, contractually, the tournament has historically owned the data. And therefore, players have also been reticent for the players, to, for the tournaments to have their data. You know, and is there a financial reward for that data and so on? That is why tennis has been a little bit further behind the curve than other sports. In, in getting this stuff implemented. Um, at the next-gen finals, they had Catapult in use um, in previous years, and I'm not sure whether that will be the case this year. But there there have been you know, more and more situations where players can wear wearable devices and wearable tech in matches, and I do believe that those floodgates will hopefully start to open sooner and sooner. How cool would it be like, you know, match point Wimbledon serving, whoever serving heart rate, like you can see the ticking, ticking, ticking 175, 176, it's going up and, and they double fault, uh, you know, or whatever. But anyway, yeah, that the data thing's yeah. interesting. We had the players wear wearable technology in the Battle of Brits and we had them wearing catapults, we had them wearing live heart rate data and, and I was doing a bit of commentary live on the, uh, you know, okay. on the TV feed about physical elements of what's happening out there for the players. And, well, I certainly found it pretty interesting. I'm hoping the viewers did too. Uh, you know, golf's used it with putting, you know, the players' heart rates from their whoop bands. Um, you know, if sport embraces this, if tennis embraces this, there are so many things that could be that could be offshoots of this if they, if they were, if the players were rewarded 
financially for sharing their data. Potentially, you know, they would have a reason to to feel comfortable in doing that. You know, like, as you say, for the viewer, it be, would be absolutely fascinating. Definitely. And my last question, if this doesn't work, we're officially signing off now. So, Matt, you've been great. Uh, <laughs> I've as I said, I've never 50 questions here, so I'm upset I haven't asked them, but you answered them in such detail. No, we'll I'm, I'm, I'm amazed. Uh, so thank you. I'm going to show you this video here. People may have to see this on Instagram somewhere. Basically, I'm going to show you a video of a kid sliding on a hard court. It got tons of comments, people giving out about it. I see more wrong than right in this, by the way. Uh, but the whole the whole sliding thing on hard court is interesting. A lot of when the biggest comments from remember is it's a waste of energy. You know he's losing time, waste of energy. Uh, I'm going to stop sharing that now. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. Um, so obviously, you know, more famously, let's take from the let's take from the men's game your Alcaraz and Djokovic example where they will slide into their backhands, particularly. Well, they'll slide into forehands as well. But what they will do as a result of doing that is they are holding their core position. Um versus players that will take an extra step to hit that shot and decelerate on their outside leg again. Okay. So let's say, let's take a backhand where you step across, hit it. If a right-hander steps across with his right leg, hits the shot and then decelerates on their left, they are having to take an extra step outside of the court and therefore are leaving the court an extra step open where the likes of the Novaks um, and the Carlos Alcaraz who will slide into that corner hit open stance on the slide are already one step or two steps closer for the next shot, which makes the court feel incredibly small for their opponents and, and puts them in a much better situation for the next ball. Um, you know, so I believe, well, clearly sliding on a hard court is here to stay. Um, so therefore we should ask the question, should we be training players to slide on a hard court? Um, and, and I don't know if I can definitively answer that with any confidence, but I do know that that is clearly the desire of the modern player to be able to learn to slide. In that specific fitness drill, the fan drill, the spider drill, whatever you mm. might call it, it would be interesting to, to compare that particular player's times when sliding versus not sliding to see if it is more efficient or not. Um, I would wager that it isn't more efficient for that specific drill. They're actually planting all the while you are sliding, you aren't planting and going for that specific drill in that specific scenario. Uh, and I believe that players who can't slide when they're playing with their left leg, particularly sliding into backhand, I believe that they can still get out there and jam their leg in, their left leg in to hit an open stance backhand and maintain their core position versus stepping across themselves and taking that extra step out. I believe that that is a trainable element and that you don't necessarily have to teach someone to slide on their left leg in order to be really efficient and effective at getting out there to hit an open stance backhand and almost stamping their left leg in okay, to yeah. hit that open stance backhand. I call it almost like a stamp when you hit and stamp at the same time. And again, that's producing that vertical force to keep that racket head nice and still to be able to get, or stable, not still, to be able to get that shape in that shot off of that open stance backhand and not give a weak shot, but give a shot that's actually quite, you know, 
quite neutralizing for an opponent who's attacked you into your backhand. So I, I believe that even if we can't teach players to slide on hard, teaching them to, to hit more open stance when they're in trouble and hold their court position as a result is probably a feature of the modern game that I think we're going to need to train players to cope with more and more. You know, and look, if you've got kids or older players that are very comfortable sliding on a hard court, fair play to them, um, you know, and and I guess, like I say, that's just more of a, it's more of a symptom of the modern game, I think, that tactically there's less time because players are hitting the ball harder and more aggressively taking the ball on earlier that you're going to have to adapt. And, and perhaps we'll start to see, you know, when people step across themselves on backhands and forehands and take that extra step, we'll see that kind of starting to fade out from the modern game and people will have to try and defend open stance more and more. Yeah. No, thanks for the explanation. Appreciate it. It's been a while. I've wanted to ask you that. So uh, Matt, yeah. thank you very much. We'll be back next year with a lot more questions and uh, yeah, you're very insightful. Thanks for the thorough answers. No, no, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Look, happy to jump on any time. I hope you enjoyed the episode of Matt. I thought it was so interesting. I actually had about 10 big questions to ask him. We just didn't get around to it. So he will be back at some stage. I don't know when, but we'll get him back on. And if you have any questions for him, let me know. I'll try and get him to answer them. If you did enjoy this, please go listen to episode 74 where he tells us his story, how he got into tennis, his book, early days working with Andy, and he touched on a few other things. It's another great episode. As I said, it's one of our most downloaded episodes. And I hope this one is too. And if you're looking for his details, you'll find them on Instagram at MattLittleSNC and also on Twitter at MattLittleSNC. Check out his link in bio there or send him a message on Instagram. He'll get back to you. He works with players all over the world and of all ages, which is amazing. And you're not going to find a better SNC coach, I think, to work with. I've seen his programs. They're good. They're easy. You can do them by yourself. And uh, yeah, so thanks again. If you enjoyed it, please share it. I'll be back soon. And thank you very much for listening.